A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Marisa Fish, who's the Director of Information Management at American National Bank. To be clear, Marisa was only representing her own views and not that of American National Bank. So some key takeaways and thoughts from Marisa's point of view. Number one, understanding your data value supply chain, the way you derive and deliver value from your data should be the crux of data and analytics work. The data value supply chain breaks down into three parts. Number one, sharing the data itself. The second, sharing analytical insights about the data. And the third, managing the data. All three are crucial to creating value from your data. Number two, intentionality is crucial. Instead of being reactive, stop and ask, what what are we trying to accomplish and what will it What value will it drive? Then you will focus much more on high value impact work. Number three, similarly, think about system engineering work as quote unquote mission engineering. What is your mission in doing your work? Does the work you are prioritizing serve the mission? Number four, when sharing information, start from What is the point? What am I trying to drive with this information exchange? Are you trying to share your or or one person's way of thinking about something? Or are you trying to give others the capability to derive their own insights from the new information? You know, are you giving them the the insights themselves? Are you giving them the capability to create the insights? Both are very valid and useful. 
but it's easy to talk past each other if you're not on the same page as to what's the goal? What, what are you trying to accomplish in this information exchange? Number five, so much of the way organizations work with data is about the known knowns. A data consumer knows what data they want and what questions they want to answer with that data. We, we need to enable people with questions to find the right data to address them and people to also do that data spelunking with data they aren't sure what it might tell them. Look to the library and information sciences space for how to accomplish that better than what we're doing. Number six, we need data librarians, not data publishers. Data publishers are about putting data on the shelf and serving only the known knowns. Data librarians are there to help people find the information they need to address more of the unknowns. The value of curiosity and driving incremental valuable insights. Number seven, there's a major mismatch in most organizations between what insights the business units are producing and the key questions the C-level execs care about. Consider creating a chief data analyst type of role to pair with execs to make sure insights are produced to support their initiatives, not just answer their questions as they come up. Think ahead, build ahead. Number eight, data teams need to take far more practices from general engineering, not just software engineering. So we learn how to better understand requirements and requirements gathering. Number nine, when requirement gathering, expecting the data consumers to know all of their requirements up front can lead to data consumers asking for the world and a bad mismatch between asks and actual needs. Look to new ways to exchange information about requirements, including the Japanese Obeya technique. There's a link to that in the show notes. Number 10, Spend the time to ensure you understand how data consumers will derive value from the information you will share with them. That will give you a better understanding of how best to serve them and what stated requirements might not be quite so required. (laughs) Number 11, it's very important for data producers to really dig into use cases to prioritize the work, but also to make sure you aren't over-optimizing or under-delivering on what would drive value. What is the point of the work? What do the data consumers want? Analysis or insights? Or do they want the data itself so they can create the uh, analysis and insights themselves? Finally, number 12, data producers slash owners are often not willing to openly share all of their data. A big reason is compliance with internal policies, regulations, all sorts of different things around compliance. So a high context exchange of how a data consumer will actually use the data can lead to more data openly shared. The producer can be assured there won't be non-compliant use. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Marisa Fish here, who is the Director of Information Management at American National Bank. Um, to be specific, though, she is only speaking on her own context and not behalf specifically of the company. So I, I asked Marisa to be on for a couple of different reasons. The The conversation we had about potential topics was really interesting because we went down a lot of different uh, potential avenues. So talking about the offensive versus defensive a- approach, which I think is really important to think about, especially when you're first moving with your data mesh strategy. Some people try to go a little bit too, too much towards offensive or focus too much on defensive. Um, and then we're going to talk about you know treating your data initiatives and strategies as a profit center instead of the cost center, how you flip that, what we can learn from the library and information sciences space. And then uh, Marisa actually thinks in a slightly different way because of, of being hard of hearing. And so she's got kind of her own way of processing information and taking context and using neuro-linguistic processing frameworks for dealing with data. And I think that actually is a really, really interesting concept to think about because as, you know, Andrew Padilla said in his episode, we have to get better about how we actually share and process our information and not think of one size fits all, but that we also kind of have to be um, realistic about not not trying to apply 8 million different frameworks at all times. So it's uh, what where is the benefit and, and how far do you have to go? So very excited, uh, could be uh, go in a lot of different directions and I'm excited about that. Uh, Marisa, if you don't mind, before we jump in, if you could give uh, people a bit of background on yourself before we jump into the conversation at hand. Great. Thank you, Scott. First, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, secondly, I told Scott absolutely that I did not want to be on a podcast because I don't <laughs> like hearing the sound of my own voice. But um, but part of that is because of my hard of hearing background. So it would actually surprise people if they heard that I was actually a Navy linguist um, for the DOD. And then that kind of jump-started my career in the data field. Um, I have 27 years working in data analytics the majority of them was in the DOD, but I recently took on a position with American National Bank as their head of inform- um, data information and enterprise data architecture. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on and, and thank you for uh, kind of uh, pushing through the not wanting to hear yourself. I don't I don't want to hear myself. This is uh, but I, I felt that the reason for the podcast is to go out and find people like yourself that have amazing context. So, you know, ironically, the, it's because of my um, other linguist and going through language school, they were absolutely fascinated by the fact that I was hard of, hard of hearing, but could still speak another language or learn another language. And I think that goes to the fact of our, um, how we think about data uh, but as it applies to me, people would recognize me throughout my career because I had either a natural, um, just a speech impediment. And, and I think when we talk about 
data, we have to realize it's not just about you know what we see in the machine, but rather how we how we actually share information, and that how I take in information is very different than the person standing next to me. And so as we're trying to develop data and analytics capabilities, are we trying to mimic one person's way of thinking or augment their way of thinking? And as Scott and I were speaking, I had to explain to him that as I'm receiving his information, I have to translate it into a pictorial view because that's my framework. That's how I learned to communicate very early on. So as we move from different organizations, and I, as I said, I moved from the DOD, that organization was command, control, direct. I need information now. I need it from for here. I need it to answer for these questions. So their data mesh and data fabric to support it was extensive because each organization would have data centralized to their ability to do their job. Air, a, you know, uh, air Force would use data to do Air Force operations. The Navy would use data to do naval operations and so on. But here I am in the banking infrastructure or the banking organization industry. I find more, sometimes I find wrong words. <laughs> so, and, and that's something to be understood is that when you're in that new industry, you have to acknowledge that they're speaking a different language and that how they share data isn't as direct as a command and control, but require a little bit more socialization. And that's why when I think about data mesh and the data fabric that we use to support it, it's trying to understand the factors of their data culture and how do they, you know, what is their relationship with data? And, and I think that point around speaking a different language, it's, it's almost that within, you know, each domain has their own business context and that you think about um, the finding the ubiquitous language. I, and I really liked what you said about, are you trying to mimic one person's way of thinking or augment their way of thinking, right? And that's where, are you trying to, we talked about this a little bit um, as we were, before we were recording about, are you trying to deliver the data and are you trying to deliver it to what they're specifically asking, or are you trying to deliver it to what you're trying to show? Are you trying to deliver insights that you have already created, or are you trying to enable them to create insights? And both have value, but um, I think back on a conversation I had with a friend where she was trying to figure out what to do after B-School. And she was like, can I sit down with you? And before we started the conversation, I said, what do you want out of this conversation? Do you want advice or do you want me to back you up on your decision? And she just immediately like shoulders up to shoulders down of, yes, I, I, I've already made my decision. I, 
I know we scheduled this two weeks ago. It was the only time we could do it, but I made my decision on what I'm going to take. It's like, great, let's talk about it. Let's talk through why you're excited about this one versus the other. And we both agreed that it was, you know, personally, it wouldn't have mattered if I hadn't agreed. I still would have supported her. But in, in the background, talking to her reasoning, it was like, yeah, you absolutely made the right call. And so what are you actually trying to achieve in information exchange, right? This is the, um, when you're listening to somebody, are you trying to fix their problem or are you just trying to provide a, a way for them to vent and process <laughs> and think about? But it's funny because it's, okay, it's not funny. It's, the first thing I heard you do in that communications exchange was give that your friend a question. And the question allowed you to orient how, well, both of you, how the data was going to be collected, how the data was going to be processed, exploited, and analyzed for a decision. And in this case, the decision was an agreement. Or, you know, there could have been multiple decisions. And I mean, a decision doesn't have to be like do X or do Y, but a decision could be guidance. It could be support. It can be um, planning. And, and if you look at your business like that, you have, you have your operations who are doing, you know, hey, we're producing products for our company but you have your financial organization and they're going to have questions on how they can do planning or budgeting. And then you have your marketing team that requires data because they're trying to ask, ask questions on, and their decisions are, well, how can I best interact with the customer? And so each one of them, or rather each one of those organizations require data from the same source as, you know, as your friend require data from you, but depending on their question, you prioritize which data would go first and prioritize which anal analysis that you would do. And so if I had to mimic that process with a, with, a, with a data and analytics capability, a system, I would still provide, ask you, at, you know, in the ones and zeros, what is all the potential data that Scott could provide, right? But I also need that those questions of, and this is where I think a lot of um, organizations, I want to say, have a challenge. They think, I'm just going to go ask and get all the data possible. But if I can't go out and get all the data possible, I mean, it's just impossible for me to go out and get all that data. I need to ask, well, can I at least go talk to my business units and derive value you know, what their value objectives are, what their visions are for each of their organizations so that I am able to at least scope the data collection and scope um, how we process it and the timing of it because it's location of the data is my processing ability of that data and it's the um, when do you need it. And in many cases, that data is centralized, but in other cases, it's not. You know, it's, it's, it's owned by other entities. And that's when I have to stop and think as an enterprise architect, 
well, I can't just exclude my data environment, my data mesh to just centralized data. I have to understand how can I reach out to those other organizations to get their data. But then I have to consider, well, what's preventing me from accessing that data? Is it policies? Is it the people who are in those organizations? Is it personalities? Or, Or is it because we as an organization had to decide what type of questions we wanted to ask of that external entity? And my people, my friends and the DOD brethren who are analysts will say, the biggest problem we have in bringing data into our analytics is our policies. Whereas maybe what I'm seeing a little bit on industry in my 120 days working in American National Bank is that it's, um, it could potentially ruin a business model for that data provider. Because if they expose their data too much that I can go pick and choose what data they, I want to answer my questions, then their business model becomes irrelevant or becomes um, not profitable. Mm-hmm. And so now I have to figure out how do I make it both relevant for both of our organizations that I can include them in my um, where I'm bringing value to my organization, but also demonstrating that I'm bringing value to them as well by being a customer of us. And it's funny, there's like about 12 different things that this is connected to uh, uh, different episodes. Like one is Rosier's on his episode talked about pushing your consumption use case upstream. So anybody who is downstream and is consuming from what, however far down the stream from the upstream data product should be letting the people upstream know. So that way they might take over the actual structuring of the information for that. And they might have additional context. Another one was Sarita Baxt at JP Morgan Chase was talking about those policies if somebody says share all your data, that's actually really bad for policies because they don't know how you're going to use it versus if you have a very registered use case, then they they are willing to share more information with you because they know how it will be used and that they can track that it will be used within policy. And then Khan Chow um, was talking about when he was at Northern Trust, he talked about they were doing data services. In, before they moved to data mesh. And, and the data services were sharing a lot of the information, but it wasn't sharing it in the structure that people wanted, and it didn't have the quality controls or things like that. And so there, the total cost of ownership of data was very hidden from the producer standpoint because the consumers had to do so much more work. And you want, if, if you can push that work up to the producers and have it be economically viable that you pay the producers for doing that, you know, that, that can be a little bit weird inside the same organization. You know, financial services is a little better around literally domains paying each other. <laughs> There's a financial right. payment structure, but like exactly what you're talking about of high, high, high grade communication but what are we actually trying to accomplish? And do you as the consumer, do you want my view of the world? Do you want me to structure it relative to my insights? Or do you want me to set it up so you can derive your own insights? H- how are we not starting with that conversation 
when somebody's trying to consume. Okay, so the first thing, my first response to you, though, is, as you identified every one of your previous guests, is I would have been curious, can you describe what your value chain is to your organization? Because if you're, as, um, I don't know how many, I, I don't know if your users are familiar with Michael Porter's value chain. He wrote this like in 1985, Harvard professor. But, you know, it's taught on almost every business course, it seems like. But the idea is we always talk about the the line, um, the line producers, the the big the business units and what their value chain is. But as data providers or rather the data group, we should understand our own value chain as well, because this goes back from, what did you say, a cost center to the profit center mentality. Because if I understand that I have three products, I'm a data producer, I'm a data, the second one is I'm a data analytics provider, but third, I'm also a data manager. The data producer says, I'm going to try to deliver and make data available to as many of my customers as possible. That's what I'm going to market to my customers. I'm going to, and that value chain is ingest it, apply my operations understand what my outputs are, and then market it. But my analytics perspective is I have to understand what that data output is because that's going to be dependent on what my analytics um, I start to promote and go after and acquire. Because if... Apologies, we had an audio issue here. So Marisa went back a little bit in what she was discussing in the data value chain conversation. As a data producer... I know that I have to reach out to my data providers to collect data, but my ability to do that is dependent on what my data analytics requirements are, those questions. So before I could do data analytics, I need to be able to go and ask the use cases from my my end state users, my business analysts. And so knowing that if I were to draw a line through that value chain, it's, it's a question of, is this done in sequence or is this, or, in, or is it done in parallel? And I find that if you can at least compartmentalize that as a data leader, that this is um, complementary and they're symbiotic, that we can provide a holistic data and analytic solution. But you have to understand your own processes for each of those as it goes through the value chain. And then that third element, which is the data manager, is there to ensure that whatever data that you collected meets the policies, meets the um, the integrity, meets the governance, meets the classification. And that's a different service that you're providing. Because, you know, I, I, I'm sitting here talking to Scott, and I'm actually trying to vision the process going through my head so I can translate it to him to say there, you're going to get multiple inputs for data, but sometimes your customer is going to say, well, I need this data model, well, I need the, or I need this specific data, and you have to ask which comes first. And then third, that data manager says, but when it does finally come in, I have to apply analytics, or I'm sorry, I have to apply governance to it. And that's really why I think it's important that you know what your um, 
what your what your value you bring to the organization. Yeah, it, it's funny the number of conversations in the last um, couple of weeks that I've had. You know, I I don't know exactly when the episodes are going out because of recording schedule and everything, but right. um, that people have really been talking about tying. It's not tying the the business strategy to the data strategy. It's the other way around. The business strategy. What are you trying to do? Drives the data strategy. If it doesn't drive what you're trying to do, if there isn't a business impact, and and to pop out to a higher level, you don't have to be very mercenary around all of your data work of, I need to know exactly what the data value is of this before I'll do it, or the business value. Because sometimes there is create, you know, the whole thing of what is luck. Luck is um, uh, preparation meeting opportunity. You have to set yourself up with that preparation and then you find the opportunity. So there is this, this, I think, misnomer around you can't do any of this kind of trying to find serendipity work or setting yourself up for serendipity work. But so much of what you're talking about is, again, I, I keep finding people who have historically created data assets and things like that that they didn't have a direct business value tying to, or somebody started to consume it and they had no idea that the the person who was producing it and wasn't maintaining it had no idea that this actually did have a significant business value. So like both sides of this coin need to be really, you know, communicating with each other. Otherwise there is value that is, is, being derived, but it might be derived off the wrong information, or it might be something that's on very shaky footing. And so you want to figure that out and solidify that. So I know that when you and I spoke before, I brought up my, my history in working for the library, for a library, like that was one of the first jobs I had, I love to read and um, check out books and whatnot. But think of what a librarian does when someone comes to them, does she say, look at all these books I have for you. Look at all this data that I have for you. You know, consume it. Or does the librarian, you know, sit there as a facilitator where someone comes in and says, you know, I have this question that I need to ask, this research question I have to ask, and I know that I need this type of data. Can you help me find it? And if you if you look at how we as data providers um, work, do you consider yourself the publisher of data, the publisher of the book, or do you consider yourself the facilitator as the librarian? Because I tend to think that when you say like data is once, you know, most of the folks are doing data ones and zeros. I think of those, um, those teams are publishing data to be consumed because they're collecting it, they're, they're trying to scope it for a particular um, audience. But then when you look as, a as I'm a data analytics provider, I have to wear the librarian hat because they're coming to me, my, my users are coming to me with questions like, um, are you familiar with the Johari model, Scott? Hmm. I'm not. Um, we, you, it's, it's, it's a psychological principle, a psychological framework that says 
you know what you know. So you got the known knowns, the unknown unknowns, the unknown knowns, and the unknown unknown. And it tries to describe how an individual will make a decision or thinking through a decision. And so a known known is my, my, my client comes in and says, Hey, I know my question and I know what the data I need. Can you help me find it? I know it's in here, but the known unknowns has your client saying, I have my question, but I don't know where to find it or how to find it. Can you help me? Whereas the unknown known is your, your clients are like, what do you mean we need data? Yet you're over here providing them because they, they don't have the questions that they, um, that they need for the data. But yet here we are in the ones and zeros saying, but we know how to get data. We know how to obtain it. You know, the data aggregators, we can bring it to you. But my unknown known client says, but I don't know what I need it for. Where the unknown and unknowns, they're saying, I don't know what data aggregators I have. I don't know what questions I have. There's a potentially, you know, you know, an opportunity that exists for all of us. But until we have this conversation, we can't execute the other three steps. And, and it's something that ties in well to a lot of the conversations. I think one um, through point that I found is there have been multiple people on who have been having their data producers produce, but it's kind of in that unknown knowns um, thing that you were saying of they are creating data products without a direct use case, without a direct thing. And so what that's led to is lower uh, consumption. And is that because they aren't then taking the next steps and saying, and here are the insights and going right. and saying, here, here, team, I'm going to I'm going to kind of push this to you, this insight to you, rather than sitting back and waiting and saying, well, we know people want to consume data. So we've produced it and therefore we are done. And a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is the product mindset, right? When you talk about are you a publisher or a librarian, a publisher is is somebody who's is a project, right? A project has a start and an end date. A product may be sunset, so it may have an end date, but in general, it is an ongoing thing. And exactly what you're talking about is that we need to be in that product mindset and that we need to think about that librarian aspect. And I've kind of brought up this concept of who, like, we keep trying to solve too much of that librarian aspect with technology. Uh And um, I had Ole Olesen Bagnu on who's got a, I think a master's or maybe a PhD even in the library and information sciences space. Right. And he was talking about um, that uh, we keep seeing the librarians kind of shift further and further back to enablement via automation, automation-based enablement instead of one-to-one enablement of being somebody that you go and talk to, but that should we in data mesh implementations, at least until we really figure out how we can implement this in the system, have a data Sherpa, have somebody that is 
Like I will guide you on your path. You have your, or, you know, spiritual advisor, but it's your, your information advisor or whatever of I'm going to go, you have your questions. I'm going to help you find all of these, these potential ways to answer it instead of asking the system and expecting that that system that you set it up so that you can answer their questions in the way they ask them. So what I find now is that most organizations, so Marisa Fish, Marisa Fish saying this, they either have CDOs that will say, I'm going to go find you that data, right? I'm going to implement that data for you. And sometimes the CIOs who are saying, so they're, they're the data, CDOs are the data producers. The CIOs are acting as data managers. But where's my chief analyst? The analyst is your, is quite frankly, I think your chief business analyst, the one who goes, who should go around and figure out what, how the operations, what processes they're doing, how is data community, how is data shared or information shared within the organization, within a team, within a business unit at the C level? Because they'll track, you're like, okay, I know, I know what questions my analysts are asking, but then I also understand what questions my business unit level is asking. And guess what? They're not correlated. So that's a problem. And, and, it, and, it, and it scales up to the C level. It's like your analyst should be asking questions that are granular to what the business unit level is asking to what granular to what the C level or um, what the C levels want. And I think you see this in, um, in our, well, I've seen it by those who are designing AI that they understand that you have to build this big data repository, but then they talk about these planes that you have to go through as the data is being processed. And I said, well, what do the planes represent? It's like you're, you're converting that data, but for, for what question, for what value? Yeah. And I think, this is something that comes up a lot in the conversations of, again, if you're just producing data into the void, um, people aren't necessarily saying, okay, it, the the producers were not in a space where they really know what consumers want, or they're not structuring it in such a way where consumers are saying, I want to um, come and grab this, or they can't find it, or, or whatever the challenge is. And so I think so much of data work and, and even a lot of the people I'm running across looking to do data mesh want to do it because it's technologically challenging or architecturally challenging or it's, it's an interesting thing to, to approach versus why are you doing this? Why, like Liz Henderson's episode, uh, I titled it, Why, Oh, Why Won't You Start From The Why? Right? <laughs> because... So much of what we do in technology, you know, when you think about software sides and there, there's or um, ML or anything like this, and the word factory keeps getting thrown in and factory tends to actually be a, a, a negative term because it's somebody who's just producing things without the idea of who's consuming them or why, you know, you have a feature factory or you have, um, you know, whether that's on the ML side or, or the, the software side, and you don't really say like, why would somebody want this, right? I, I think somebody's going to want this. Oh, well, have you talked to them? What are they trying to accomplish with what you're doing? Well, so that's why I say run your, run what you think you're doing. If you're a leader, run your, run your service 
as a through the value chain assessment. And that point where you say the marketing, how are you marketing your service? If you're just saying I have data and there's a no, so what? Then you have to ask yourself, well, why did you go get that data? Because it's simply buying a data aggregation tool or a data aggregation service has to be tied to, and in, in my case, like, why are we going after that data aggregation? I said, because I need to be able to expose this to my business units leaders to think of the art of possible and the questions that they have to ask. In some cases, I don't have their requirements to build the enterprise data architecture. But if I can, but if I can get enough, if I do a peer review and I see how other financial industry, uh, financial companies are doing it, and I can see what type of analytics they used and what data that they collected, I can prototype that and present it to my users to say, do these questions interest you? But that's the service why I brought that analytic model. That's why I brought the data aggregator is because I'm trying to help my business unit ask the questions that will drive their value up. That's how I market it. And that um, when you talked about marketing, right, like internally marketing, it's um, it's something that nobody really wants to do. And I talked to somebody about we should come up with a new term so that because marketing has a bad connotation. So like when, when you're talking about I, I want to it's not that you go out there and you say, I've got data, come come consume the data. You go out there and you say, hey, I've got these different sources of data. Is this going to be helpful to you, right? You don't just wait for the consumers to come to you. You want to go out to them as well and have that conversation and that high context exchange. So much of why data goes wrong is that you're not really asking, what are you really trying to get to? Or somebody says, well, we want it in real time. And the uh, when you actually dig in, it's like, well, we want it with a two-hour freshness, right? Like within two hours, we want this updated, but we just are sick of it being on the 24-hour, 48-hour data warehouse cycle. And, and we have to drive towards the cost of change in data as well being lower so you can iterate with each other. Can I, but can I ask you, who's the, who is asking the operators this question? If you're the data producer, you're the your database engineer, you're the network engineer bringing that data on and you're worried about um, bringing in that content, you know, you're kind of in that data manager mindset, mm-hmm. right? The ones and zeros. They're not the ones who are going to be, in, they're the IT team. They're not the ones who are going to be embedded with the operators. And I say operators a lot because I'm from the DOD, but it's operators, your business analysts, you know, whether it's in finance, whether it's in treasury services, whether it's in um, product development. If you, as a, and I'm gonna call myself a data analyst in this example, are trying to identify the data analytics capability in order to scope what data you're bringing on, you have to spend time with your customers, your internal customers. You have to see how they execute their, their, their business workflow. I think there's a combination of 
knowledge management to knowledge engineering. Because for me, the, in my this new position I have, I was completely new to the banking industry. So the first thing I have to do is develop these use cases. I'm not going to be talking to the IT team to understand what the use cases are. I have to go to, right, I have to go to the business users. And in many cases, they might not be able to describe their operational architecture, their operational activities, their who does what, the roles and responsibilities, who talks to whom. And if that, and if I'm trying to figure out, well, how can you ask me to bring data in if you're not quite sure what your relationship with data and sharing it is? And so one of my first steps is build these use cases, figure out, do some process mining, you know, build this operational view so that now we have a reference point as data providers to say, oh, they need data to make this, do this risk analytic. Oh, they need data to be, to look like this, to do this decision making. And, but there's an effort from your data analytic provider to do this. I don't know how many of your listeners have heard this before, but I'm not the, I'm not the owner, right? You're not the owner of the business process, but you're the owner of the data analytic. And that's why you can't, my opinion, again, you can't ask them to produce their, their process. It's a, it's about listening and hearing what they do and documenting it so that you are able to develop. Uh, those of those of us who worked in DOD systems engineering will say, oh, yeah, of course, because that's the first thing we do is we collect requirements. We build an operational architecture. You know, then we align the systems to which ones and then we align the data to which ones, you know, to which product we need. But that's not a common business practice outside of the DOD. So if I said I'm a systems engineer, that would probably cause some people some concern because I don't advertise myself as a systems engineer. I advertise myself as a data architect masking as a systems engineer to, 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 to get them comfortable with these processes that we're trying to bring on. Yeah. I, I think it boils down to a lot of what, what a number of guests have said of, of like driving to the business. Why driving the relationships and driving the conversation, right? Like really digging into what are we trying to do? And and you don't, at least from my opinion, I don't think you want to necessarily say you have to have your use case exactly figured out. And so you as the consumer need to know exactly what information you want versus let's have a context exchange. What are you trying to accomplish? How can I actually assist you in accomplishing that and not in a once in an ongoing basis. And then we'll talk about what that drives from the business perspective. And if I need to take on more work to do this, to serve you, then we need to figure out how I get that funding, how I get that prioritization. You can't just ask me for additional response. You can't put additional responsibilities on me without giving me additional resources. I call that a, a, at least on the podcast, I call that a dot, 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 not nice move because I'd call it a different <laughs> word if, if I weren't on no, the podcast. No, no, I mean, and it's funny too, because since we still operate most of these data um, 
CIO organizations, CDO organizations act as cost centers within industry, you're, you're not paying for it. They are. The business units are. So you have to capture their use case. You have to demonstrate the value to them because it's their decision on whether or not they pay for that service. You know, I was thinking that there was a, there was a time in my life where I had to do something akin to um, combat engineering. And you, we had our engineers sitting in the field with the, the, um, with the operators, the, 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 the U.S. forces. And they would actively collect their requirements so that we would know how to build our systems and then what data that we need to bring in to support their analyses or um, research. That was the ultimate tactical use. But then as I moved up in, like up the corporate chain, so to speak, now I'm at the organizational level and they're trying to think of how do we advocate for broad um, enterprise change into our data strategy? You have to look at your stakeholders and have a conversation with them. And you can't necessarily embed with all of them because this is a broad organizational change. And I was introduced by um, one of our consultants to the ABEA process. It's a Japanese um, approach for collecting requirements. And it, it goes back to the, I know they need data, but I don't know what their questions are. So the ABEA room lets you put all these different use cases in front of your users, your stakeholders, and you bring them in and they, because you don't want to impact on their time. So you try to set up like a, a week or a three day event and you go to them. Like, so if you have, so if we had distributed users, um, I would go to one location versus another, but you could do that in your own organizations. Like, let me bring all this to my finance team. Let me bring this all to my product offering team. Let me bring this Abea room, this Abea concept to my marketing team. And you're like, what do you like or not like about these requirements or these questions? And each one will give you their feedback directly without you actually asking them, what is your requirement? You just, you just give them the use case. And that's how you can generate um, your data and analytic requirements when your users either don't have time or don't, or don't have an awareness of what the art of possible is. Yeah, and, and I've talked about this as well of uh, collaborative negotiation, right? Where if somebody says, I've got these requirements, and, and so you say, okay, I need it to be five nines of accuracy on your data, and I need it real time. I need it, you know, um, with uh, a hundred, within 100 milliseconds of latency. And it's like, okay, well, that's going to cost us $100 million to do. So let's start to actually figure out you know, and, and um, Emily Gorsensky at ThoughtWorks had done uh, a webinar with, um, I think with Jamac uh, uh, last year, and she talked about there was, there were two different use cases, and they needed the exact same set of data. But one needed it with very, very low latency, you know, not in the millisecond latency. There's an episode I did about why 
super, super real time and, and um, data mesh becomes an issue because you need to be able to run large scale analytical queries. So if you're going to run basically these huge queries that slow down something where milliseconds matter, it's not a good thing. But, you know, they needed it with like a, a five minute timeliness, right? It, everything that happened had to land within five minutes, but they needed 90% accuracy. And then they had another use case where they needed 99.9% accuracy, but two hours after it happened was a great SLA for them. So it was far, far, far less costly to do those exact same set of data as two different data products because they specifically um, looked at what were the SLAs we have to hit for this instead of trying to combine them into the same thing. I think when you really start to dig into, and you dig into, you talked about people just say, give me all the data. And I'll, I'll figure it out from there. There's there's a, a way that that's actually happening in certain ways um, in data mesh. Some organizations are creating kind of purposeful data swamps so that people can see what data could be on offer. And then as they, they start to build their use case, they go, this would be good if we had a high quality source for this. And so then they they move that into building the actual way to to um, feed that specific use case, but they're not creating the work for themselves ahead of time. And they create reusability and they then start to market it to other people and say, oh, we've got this, or they start to add additional information and say, oh, we're adding these additional things to this. And then you start to market that internally. But right. it's it, so much of this is, it, it's so... It, you know, when I tell people that they're going to be on and, and I say, okay, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. I let people know ahead of times and give kind of some examples because otherwise it's kind of the, so tell me about yourself, right? So tell me about your data. What data do you have? Versus like, hey, here are five different things I'm trying to accomplish. Can you help right. me achieve any of these things? Like, what what do you have on offer? And can we find a good way to do that? And it might be that, no, the cost is going to be way, way higher than the um, outcome. And so you have to look at that return on investment. But having those conversations with each other is so crucial. And we we just haven't done that in data. We haven't had, you know, open kimono conversations about I'm not going to create a requirement on you based on this, this conversation. We have to have that collaborative negotiation. But like, let's talk about what I'm trying to do and let's talk about what you've got. And can we can we work together on this? And I'm going to make sure that you have the support and the funding to work together. And then how do we facilitate it and all that? But like, we haven't had that. It's been this requirements of just tell me what you need and I'll go do it instead of this collaborative process that you're talking about. So I would ask of the data community, do they consider themselves engineers. And the reason why I ask this is because when you are a provider of data, say you've got a database, right? And you say, I have this data for you. And you're like, and I'm asking you, how do you want to use it? That is, that to me is not a, um, a collaborative engineering relationship, but as an as a engineer, whether it doesn't matter if you're software systems, you get this you have this approach. They teach you this system engineering lifecycle approach. And they said, first, go collect your requirements. 
and then they give you processes on how to collect your requirement. And I often wonder, you know, how many data scientists or um, software engineering organizations have had to be put through that rigor in industry because it's so easy for someone within the team to, I'm going to build a product because I've seen this a lot. Hey, I needed to collect this data. I didn't have a database to store it. So I just started putting all this data into it. Now we use it as part of our normal reporting activity. And it was a, it was a reaction. It wasn't, you know, it was a result of them having kind of data spread within just their team. But if you come in and and now I have to come in and look at that database, I was like, oh, well, how do we how do we expose this database to other individuals within the organization that can leverage it? And now you're kind of putting an overlay of that systems engineering process over it to say, let me show you a prototype of this database. Let me see, you know, is there any way you would want to interact and use it? And now I can start to expand on that database because now I'm building that database to be more um, useful to the entire business. Same with web pages. Oh, I just built this web page because I needed to put all that data on it. Well, was there a process to, well, which data did you want, decide to put into that um, page? Why did you put it on that? Why did you have these columns? If you just had someone who did it individually, chances are, they didn't have a systems engineering process to it. And that that's architectural. And it's, it's a question of what is your maturity of your architecture processes versus your data and analytics strategy? Because I can just say, hey, I'm going to go out and get data and analytics. But then the second one question is, okay, well, do you know how to manage the process of acquiring them, engineering them, delivering them, ensuring the users have the right set of data? That's a discipline. Yeah. The the word that I, I was also thinking about is one that I've been kind of made fun of for saying over and over, which is intentionality, right? Like what, what are you trying to do and why? And not just, and, and sometimes it can be that I thought this was interesting and I thought others might like to see it. That's your intention. Okay. Then you know how much support to put behind it. You know how to do that. And that if anybody wants to use it, they should talk to you and then you can, you know, move it more to a product process. But a lot of what you're talking about, I think people in data need to, you know, the, the data as a product thinking, people think that that means creating data products. And it's like, no, it's actual product management. It's actually going okay. and thinking about how does this impact the business? Do we want to do this more? Yeah, we had, I had a boss once who said instead of calling it systems engineering, he called it mission engineering because you're trying to put value to the, um, to why you're engineering the capability. Why are you bringing the software, the data, the IT to uh, to us, to the operators? And he was an operator. You know, he was, I won't say his name because people can look him up on Wiki. <laughs> uh, but that, but what we used to say amongst ourselves, well, that's, 
what systems engineering 101, we're returning back to the discipline of developing capability. And I think where that got lost or where this, um, this approach was lost is this need to be able to bring capability quickly, you know, turn, you know, turn to products. It's like, I always see this as like, sometimes I see sometimes where they have like these not hackathons, but like AI development competitions, like who can bring new AI and bring it to, you know, bring it to the user faster and quicker. And they kind of ignore that process because it becomes it, it, it's sexy to see who can build a new AI user interface. And, but once, once it becomes a product and once it becomes deployed or installed or used, the enterprise architects are like, where was the requirement for this? You know, I, I mean, I see they're accessing some data, but they didn't think about the integration requirements. They didn't think about the, 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 the operation and maintenance requirements for that AI capability. So, so now you, you go back like, well, I see they were trying to do scalable agile framework and trying to bring new capability, but that also means you have to follow the process. You can do it quickly. It doesn't have to take months. It doesn't have to take um, weeks. It can take days, but it's just a quick process. That's like the whole ML engineer and ML ops engineer instead of data scientist of just like, did you get to something interesting versus can we build something out of this? Um, I did want to do, because uh, we're coming up kind of uh, on an hour here. So I did want to do oh, sure. a bit of a uh, of a hard uh, shift towards um, the one question that that I think, I don't think we've got an answer based, maybe you do, I certainly don't. But I did want to talk about this, your concept that you were talking about of the neuro linguistic processing frameworks for dealing with data, right? Like how we as humans process information is far different than how we've gotten the machines to because we've been limited by the machines. But now we've got much better <laughs> machine capabilities, right? It's not that we're super, super limited by uh, memory or um, by storage or anything like that. So can we push ourselves in a new direction and, and the way that you think and process information is different than the way I think and process information, which uh, when I've tried to explain to people my own thought processes, I basically say it's a, you know, in the cartoons when there's that big bag of cats that are fighting each other, that's what it is from a wording standpoint. I have it in, in my picture. I have uh, like the concepts completely framed in my head, but the words themselves are totally jumbled. So like, I think this is so important for people to understand that what, how are we trying to share information? Why can we, is it only in one form? Is it, you know, I, again, you, you said the thing very early on about, um, am I trying to, um, share, uh, my view or am I trying to augment your view? Right. Like what what's the actual purpose of this conversation so, or what's the purpose of what we're talking? To, um, just to clarify, I want to say that when we do AI, sometimes it mimics a process or augments a process. So it's not necessarily my view, but it mimics a process. Mm -hmm. And so to that point, when we collect data, 
There's two ways we do it. We do it via vision and we do it via hearing. What AI tool do we use to do data collection? Think about that. Just put that on the shelf. Next, what tool, what AI tool do we use to transform and extract that data once it's been collected? Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, that's an ETL or that's an API or so on. I'm like, okay, great. But what was the framework for that translation? What program and why did you use that program to translate it that way? And you have to apply a cognitive or neuroscience approach to that, that, uh, that conversation because what if it's a, it's a biased view? And therefore, you write your, your code to only pull data out based on that, that cognitive interpretation of, you know, for your, um, for your work. Or to take a step back, there is a function when we're collecting data where it just simply gets translated and moved into a, you know, to um, your core memory or to your work, you know, to your frontal memory, right? Where are you on that stage when you're implementing that API? It's like, am I building it so I can take that data and just move it to where it needs to go? Am I writing an API to now translate and frame it for a particular question based on that cognitive um, decision that you need to make or that cognitive risk analysis that you need to make? Or am I taking that data and combining all these views, I'm sorry, all these outputs from the various decisions that were made by my analysts into one to support a strategic decision? And it's there was a model once that I saw, and it was like a science of intelligence model. It was uh, put out by, it was a course taught at MIT called the Science of Intelligence. And they, they say that the brain has a framework where you collect data, you process it, you do risk analytics, and you symbolize it, and then you make a decision. What is your AI framework for that same process to mimic the brain or to augment the brain? And, and I don't even think it has to necessarily be about AI, right? I think it can be about anything because I think this is where it gets a little bit difficult when we think about where Data Mesh is trying to head of the producers um, being the ones that, you know, the people who, who know the data best are the ones who are in charge of sharing it. But do they have to really think about... Um, all these different processing frameworks or all the different ways that this could be shared in order to exchange your context. And does that significant, you know, if you really, really spend a lot of time to increase the amount of context in the information you're sharing, what's the value of that? Like, is it worth the, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth the effort? In some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. So how do we evaluate when we really focus so much on, on creating different ways to share our context? The same way you would do it as, as you make your day-to-day decisions, honestly. I mean, <laughs> that, that, I say that not glibly, but because think about what you're doing right now. You're collecting data from me, right? And we could, we could have covered a number of topics, but we scoped it based on 
um, for the purpose of the podcast and time, what we wanted to, to, to discuss. But I had to reach back and do my research. I had to go through and look at what the previous podcasts were, but I also have my own long-term memory of what I've done. So in order for me to give you that the answers that I'm giving you, I'm pulling data from short-term and long-term memory to have that conversation. And so mimic that with AI. If I have to answer a question for any one of my bosses, one of them is going to say, well, there's some short-term stuff that we need to consider, but there's long-term historical things that we need to consider. How do I bring that into the same environment? And I might say, well, the short-term one will be easier because it's already automated, but I might have to digitize your long-term. Yeah, no, exactly. I think uh, I Andrew Padilla, when he said we need to get the machines to work a little bit more like humans, so that way we can understand what they're doing <laughs> a little bit more is, is, is an interesting concept. There was an author I read, or an article I read, anybody wants to ask me for it, go ahead and contact me via LinkedIn. But it was by John Duncan, and he talks about how the brain has a series of programs. It executes a series of programs to um, to uh, deliver a, not a decision. It does make a decision, but it's a decision on, do I lift my hand? Do I close my eyes? But it's a series of programs. Well, AI should be a series of programs. How did we get to collect the data? How do we frame it in order for us to um, store it, access it, process it? But then it's also another program that says, okay, how do we convert it to answer a question that we have, you know, some deep analysis and perspective that we need to do? And if, if, you, if you think about that, he calls it multiple demand theory. I might be wrong, but... Double check, but he. Um, if you start to look at why you're collecting data, this I'm hoping that I could bring us back around. But if you look at why we're collecting data and processing it and doing analysis on it and making decisions in order to provide value to the business, ask how a person who is doing it would actually do that on their own. And then that's why you mimic their processes. That's how you mimic or augment the way they think through it. So maybe they don't need help doing data collection because they're already doing that data collection via emails, via text messages, via um, files. But then you say, you know, when you're doing that next stage about combining all that data, Perhaps we can digitize those files. Maybe we could um, then put it in a database and connect it to your database of um, Excel spreadsheet, as well as taking that new data to answer your question. And then they're saying, well, my question is like, I need um, HR data. I need customer data. I need um, system data. You're like, okay, then I'll bring all that data into the same environment. But you're asking them, how do how are they thinking through that process? And you're like looking at that person 
Well, you'll need this program, that program, that program, that program to do A, B, C, D, E, and E. And this is how I can digitize it. Yeah, I, I think that keeping the end goal in mind and then creating the ways to get there is something a lot of humans don't do. It's 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 quite interesting from my interactions. But um, so again, uh, Marisa, this has been uh, so so interesting and helpful. I, I it's a it's one of those where it's a little bit different than the way a lot of uh, the episodes go. But I think these are the ones that are often so valuable to get us to pop up to a higher level and really rethink and be like, hey, let's recenter. Let's really think about what we're trying to do. So I think this one is is one that, especially for, for data leaders out there, is one to come back to, right? <laughs> to really say, am I... Uh, focusing on the right things am have i really thought through what i'm trying to do and and what's you know you talked about that kind of mission engineering what is my mission for this what is my grander mission right what is, is this is this kind of micro mission counter to my greater mission and things like that and 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 think about that prioritize all that so um well put Thank you. This is this is <laughs> Scott's already translating for me. I love it because my I got these big concepts, but sometimes it needs to be reduced and concise. And thank you, Scott, for doing that. That's that's the 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 role I try and play is the I'm not really a podcast host as much of a conversation facilitator. But um, <laughs> so is I mean we covered a whole lot. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, or um, or is there any? Um, way that you'd like to kind of wrap up the episode, any point that you'd kind of want to, I mean, we kind of just made a, a point there, but is there any other point that you'd want to kind of wrap up with? First, thank you again for having me on your podcast. Uh, two, I do come at this from an analyst perspective and who's also had to do the systems engineering for it. And I've done this over 27 years. And if there's a problem or a challenge that you're having, very likely I've done it. And, you know, I, I like to say I've been successful in my execution of those. And feel free to contact me on LinkedIn is probably the best way to contact me. Because we should talk to one another, we should have these peer conversations. Um, a friend of mine who is in information security said, his community doesn't speak with one another to learn. He said, but it's really fascinating to see how we in the data community do. And if anyone just wants to talk about your data strategy, how to kick it off, how to make, how to optimize a mature one, I'd be glad to have that conversation. Yeah, I think part of the podcast is that those conversations were happening behind closed doors. So I'm trying to have those conversations behind closed doors with a little bit of a format tweak, but those conversations behind closed doors in front of more people. So, and that, that answers my um, typical uh, last question, which is where, where can people find you? What do you want them reaching out about? So I'll drop a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes, as well as some of the other resources that you uh, had mentioned. But again, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, it's been a really interesting and fun conversation. And I also want to thank everyone uh, out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Marisa Fish, who's the Director of Information Management at American National Bank. Uh, as discussed earlier, she was only representing her own views. 
You can find a link to her LinkedIn, as well as some background on a few of the topics she mentioned in the show notes, as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.